Would you please welcome Dr. Jody Owens? Thanks, Wayne. My students at the college get in trouble if they text in class. In fact, my rule is they have to bring Oreo cookies the next day to class if their phone goes off or if I catch them texting. Uh, but we didn't make Wayne bring cookies. It's an honor to be here with you. I'm, I'm just really grateful for the chance to share with you and have enjoyed my few days in Decatur. This is a lovely town. Uh, first time I've spent much time here, and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I was talking with my wife. She said, should we move there? I said, ah, it might be too cold in the winter for me. I grew up in South Georgia, but uh, what a wonderful place. If you will, and you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis in his well-known book, Mere Christianity. And he writes some very insightful words. And he's writing here about how we make choices and what our choices turn us into. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, that part of you that chooses, into something a little different than what it was before. And taking your whole life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God, and with its fellow creatures, and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. And then he concludes by saying, each of us at each moment is progressing toward the one state or the other. Every day you make choices. You make decisions. Decisions and choices that will shape you into a particular kind of person. But have you ever stopped to consider what guides your ethical decision making? There's a well-known decision-making paradigm called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. That's a mouthful. Even if you've never heard the phrase, you've probably used this model of decision-making. It's named after the great Methodist evangelist John Wesley, who valued human reason and experience as very helpful guides in living life. And this paradigm argues for four sources that can inform our worldview and our moral decision-making. The four sources are Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, tradition, and by that is meant the doctrines and the practices followed by the church for centuries, reason, which is a God-given gift. He's given us the ability to think and reason. And then finally, experience, experience. It's a nice little paradigm that's broadly accepted, but there's a problem. John Wesley never referred to this quadrilateral in any of his writings. So it's actually a misnomer to call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. The term didn't appear until 150 years after his death. 
And it was actually a historian named Albert Outler who first developed this conceptual framework back in 1964. But shortly after he came up with this quadrilateral, Outler saw that there was a danger in it as a model for Christian discernment. He anticipated, rightly I think, that the quadrilateral could be seen as an equilateral. In other words, all four sources would have equal weight. And later in his career, he wrote these words. He says, there's one phrase that I wish I had never used, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. He says, it has created the wrong image in the minds of so many people, and I'm sure it will lead to all kinds of controversy. And boy, was he right. Many people who have no clue about Wesley's theology or, or Wesley's methodology have adopted this paradigm, and the result has been a diminishing role for Scripture as the primary source of authority and decision-making. John Wesley would roll over in his grave. He never envisioned four equal sources of knowledge and truth. For Wesley, it was always a hierarchy, and Scripture was always at the top. Here's what Wesley actually wrote. These are his own words. He says, try all things by the written word. Let all, let everything bow before it. You are in danger every hour if you depart ever so little from Scripture. But this paradigm, this way of thinking has become widely accepted in our culture, whether you know the term or not. And it's, it's practiced in universities. It's been adopted by many Christian leaders and teachers. But as I think about it, do I really want my reason and my experience to be primary guides for moral decision-making and the choices I make? Am I so arrogant to think that my reason and my experience is equal to God's Word? I ask that as a legitimate question, and I think we find an answer to that question in the book of Genesis. So I ask you to turn to Genesis 1. I want to dive into the first two chapters of Genesis because I think it gives us an answer to that question. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, one of the things that becomes quickly obvious is that all creation came about by the spoken word of God. And each day of creation actually begins with a refrain that is repeated again and again and again in Genesis chapter 1. You may know it. And God said, right? And God said. In fact, if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bibles, I would encourage you, underline that phrase. It's in verse 3. It's in verse 6. It's in verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, and 26. Again and again and again. So it's teaching us that creation and you and I came about by God's spoken word and God said. And then we learn something else in Genesis chapter 1. We learn that the word of God created something that was good. We get another repeated refrain in the book of Genesis. We see it the first time in verse 4. God saw that the light was good. And again, if you like to underline in your Bibles, underline that phrase, God saw, 
and underline the word good. And we see a variation of that phrase throughout Genesis chapter 1. That Hebrew word that's translated saw means much more than just physical sight. It actually implies moral discernment. It implies making a judgment. So God looked at the world that he had created by his spoken word, and he judged that it was morally good. I think you could legitimately translate that phrase, God judged that it was good, right? That's what it means that he saw. And that phrase appears again in verse 10, it's in verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, repeated over and over and over and over and over again until we get to verse 31 where the frame changes a little bit to sum up everything that has gone on in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 31 and you'll see it changes. God saw all that he had made and it was what? Not just good, but very good. Very good. So from the way that God ordered day and night to the symbiotic relationship between land and sea, even down to the relationship between male and female, it was all created in an order and in a way that was judged by God to be morally good. So one of the basic truths we learn from Scripture right at the start is that God's Word always creates something that is good. He speaks goodness into being. I love the way Psalm 33 kind of sums up this theology. Uh, in fact, Psalm 33 does this so well. I think it serves as a nice confession of faith about what we believe about Scripture. So I'm actually going to ask you if you would to read responsively with me a part of Psalm 33. Uh, you guys may know how to do responsive readings. I'll read the light print part and you all read the bold print part. And I'm going to ask you to actually stand as we do this because this is what we believe about God's Word. This is Psalm 33, verse 4 through 9. For the Word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all He does. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. The word of life. Amen. You may be seated. You see, we agree as followers of Christ, we agree with the psalmist that God's Word, both His spoken Word and His written Word that we have in Scripture, is right and true and faithful and just. The next time you have a decision to make, a choice to make about what is good and true versus what is evil and destructive, Go back and read Psalm 33 as a reminder that God's Word will never lead us astray. Now, flip over to Genesis chapter 2, where we're going to see 
that those two refrains that we saw repeated in chapter 1 spill over into chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18 in Genesis. The Lord God said, okay, there's our first refrain, right? The Lord God said, it is not good. There's the second word, the word good, right? It is not good for man to be alone. And here we learn something else about God's Word. God's Word not only creates what is good, it also identifies what is not good. It was not good for man to be alone. We see that same dynamic at work in the two preceding verses, back up to verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded, that's just a synonym for said, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of what? Good, there's that word again, and evil, right? For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I want to camp on this verse for just a few minutes because this verse is often misunderstood. It isn't about God restricting access to a fruit that grows on a tree. That's not what this is about. No, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the authority to judge or discern what is right and what is wrong, what is wicked and what is pure, what is good and what is evil. And up to this point in the text, God is the one who sees and judges and determines what is good and evil. So God has a word for Adam and Eve. He says to Adam and Eve, listen, guys, it is not good for you to have this authority to judge what is good and what is evil. I am going to reserve that right for myself. I, he says, I am the arbiter of good and evil. God says, I determine what is a blessing and what is a curse, what nurtures and what poisons, what brings life and what brings death. And he basically says to them, it's appropriate for me to make the call on what is good and evil because, one, I'm God, but also because it was by my word that I spoke this world into being with an order that reflects my goodness and my benevolence. So God says to them, I alone understand the intricacies of how this world works and how I created it. I alone see the disaster that will come if you stray from that order. God says it is good and I want it to remain good for you and for all who will come afterwards. So you can't have access to this tree which represents the authority to discern and judge what is good and what is evil. And then it happens, right? Adam and Eve rebel. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3. We sometimes call this the fall. And I want you to listen again for the echoes of that refrain that we heard in chapter 1 and chapter 2. God saw that it was good, right? Let's listen for that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the turning point of human history, or at least one of them. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. I'm from South Georgia and the Southern translation says they realized they were naked. <laughs> right? And if you're from the South, you know the difference. Naked means you don't have any clothes on. Naked means you don't have any clothes on and you're up to something. <laughs> right? Well, Adam and Eve were up to something. Did you catch it? Adam and Eve's sin was egregious, not because they ate a fruit that was off limits. No. Listen to the language again of verse 6. When the woman saw... Remember, what does that word really mean? Judged, right? Who's been doing all the judging about what's right and wrong up to this point? God. But now the woman judges, right? That the fruit of the tree, which God had said is a bad thing, she judges that it's a good thing, right? And it's pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, and she took some of it and ate it, Right? What God saw as evil and destructive and a curse for humanity, Adam and Eve now see or judge to be a good thing. And so they take the fruit. Remember, Adam and Eve had free access to every other tree in the garden. I mean, it is mind-blowing the, the, the blessings and responsibilities that God gave to them. God even gave Adam and Eve the ability to create another human being. That's insane that God would do that. He gave them all sorts of rights and privileges. But the only thing he said, the only thing I reserve for myself, the only thing I restrict is the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong because I'm the only one who really understands how this world I've created works. And so that was restricted. It was not accessible. That fruit was not offered. And so notice what the text says. The text says that Eve took it. We sometimes call this the fall, right? The fall. That word fall is actually not anywhere in the text. I actually prefer to call this the take, the grasp. Adam and Eve look at something that God says is off limits and they say, no, we're going to take that. Fall implies they stumbled. This was a conscious decision to usurp God's authority to become and play God. We want to decide what's right and what's wrong. I asked that question earlier. 
Do we really want to rely on our own reason and experience when it comes to making moral decisions? Are we really so arrogant to think that our rational ability and our experience is equal to God's word? And the answer found in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 seems to be yes. We are that arrogant. This is humankind's basic sin problem. The desire to usurp God's right to determine good and evil. We want to be the arbiters of right and wrong. Satan nailed it down, right? You want to be like God, he told them. You'll be like God. And so we reject God's word and we judge for ourselves. The author of Proverbs puts it so succinctly. Proverbs 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right into a man, but its end is the way to what? Death. Seems right to us, but it leads to death. And when we, in our limited reason and experience, arrogantly follow our own way, usurping God's authority, literally, all hell breaks loose. That's what happened in the garden. Friends, Albert Outler, that historian, was right. He was a prophet. That Wesleyan quadrilateral is fraught with all kind of danger. It's just a modern expression of what was going on in the garden. And John Wesley himself was right. Try all things by the written word and let everything bow down before it. You were in danger every hour if you depart ever so little from Scripture. Adam and Eve departed from the word that God had given them, and we've been following suit ever since. And every time we determine what is right and wrong, instead of listening to what God says is right and wrong, it ends poorly every time. So we live in a world that is coming apart at the seams, a world where evil and sin and fear and shame reign. And yet, there's hope. Because we not only have that one spoken word that God gave to Adam and Eve, we have so much more. We have an entire collection of words from God that we call Scripture. And the rest of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 right on to the end of Scripture is a series of words from God describing how this fallen world will be redeemed. I love the way St. Augustine of Hippo described the Holy Scriptures. Here's what he said. He said, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. Isn't that good? Letters from home. This past Father's Day, my daughter Abby gave me one of the best Father's Day presents I've ever received. Not just Father's Day presents, ever presents I've ever received. She wrote me a letter for Father's Day. And in that letter, she described some of the things that she loves about me as her father. And I've read that letter half a dozen times since Father's Day. I, I cherish it. I reread it. it. It makes me want to live up to what she sees in me. I want to be what she describes in that letter. And it's the same with Scripture. We cherish it. We reread it. 
it makes us want to be what God sees in us and to live according to his vision for human life. God's word is our letter from home. Not a word from this fallen world, but the world as God intended it at creation. I love how the Anglican Catechism boldly affirms that in the scriptures we have God's word written. I love that. The same word that spoke creation into being, right? That spoken word is now written, spoken to the apostles and the prophets, written down for us. We have these letters from home that remind us of our true home. They prepare us to live in our home country. They describe the beauty of that country and how relationships work there. They describe our loving Father, who is the benevolent king of that realm. And they describe what he loves and what he hates. They teach us how to live in this life so that we can be ready to fully live in the life to come when we get home when we get home. And that's why the church has confessed from the start that Scripture is the authoritative rule for our faith and practice. Turn over to the New Testament, if you will, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And there Paul clearly states that Orthodox Christian faith is rooted in Scripture. Uh, he begins in verse 12 and 13 by contrasting those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus with evildoers and imposters. And he says these evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Right? They're running into the same problem as Adam and Eve, discerning for themselves what is right and wrong, and that always ends in deception and death. But then Paul says in verse 14 and following, he, he has a different path for Timothy. He says, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, in scripture... God has written us letters from home that serve as our guide for life. All of our choices are to be filtered through his word, which creates what is good and identifies what destroys those good intentions. My mother passed away when I was 23 years old. I was just reaching that age where you began to realize that your parents actually know a little bit more than you thought they knew. And now, years later, there are days when I so wish that I could hear her reassuring voice sharing her wisdom and giving me guidance. Not long after my mother died, I moved to Tennessee, and I've been living there ever since. 
moved from South Georgia to Tennessee. But there are days when I wish I had a letter from home. <laughs> there are days when I wish I'd go to the mailbox and find a letter from South Georgia, and it was a, a note from mom giving me some guidance and reassurance. But you know what? When, when I'm trying to decide what is true and good in the context of a culture that seems to accept everything, when I'm trying to grow as a man to be the husband and the father that I want to be, when I'm faced with the temptation to accept something as right and good, even though I know deep down that it's wrong and destructive, it's in those moments that I'm reminded I have a letter from home, from my heavenly father, who gives me guidance in making those decisions. Paul says this is foolishness to the world, but for us it is salvation. I, I love the way the author of Hebrews frames it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Reason can be very helpful. Tradition, I love it. I'm a historian. I study it. Experience is a gift. But all three of those gifts can be distorted by our own selfish desires. But the Word of God, our letter from home, shapes us, convicts us, cuts us to the heart, judges every thought and attitude. That Word of God stands forever. There is no other reliable guide to lead us to the home that God wants us to experience in this life and the next. That's the ancient confession of the church, and we stand on that. This is where we take our stand because Scripture shows us our Father, shows us the world as it truly is, shows us ourselves as we truly are, and finally, the Scriptures lead us home. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.